April 2005, nine young Australians were arrested with attempting to smuggle 8.3 kilos of heroin out of Bali. Indonesian authorities were working on a tip from the Australian Federal Police, who had informed their Indonesian counterparts in the hope that it would lead to the identification of the Drug Syndicate Distribution Network and others higher up in the chain. It didn't. What it did do was ensure that these nine offenders would be trialled and sentenced in a country where the penalties for drug trafficking are more harshly imposed than those for murder. Hi and thanks for joining me. This is episode 9 of Nightmare Somewhere. It is on the Bali 9, however, the second half is exclusively about the trials, prison stay and execution of the co-ringleaders Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran. The following contains distressing content and coarse language. It isn't intended for everyone. Members of the Bali 9 ranged in age from 18 to 29 most of them with criminal history and convictions for various crimes. Some had suffered substance abuse problems in the past. One article called them a group of misfits. They were made up of quite a melting pot of ethnic backgrounds, but most of them were Australian born. They allegedly weren't well aware of Indonesia's tough stance on drug smuggling and that such a crime could be punished with the death sentence by firing squad. There were eight men and one woman, and essentially they each took a gamble for a quick payday. Andrew Chan was a 21-year-old from Sydney. He is the youngest child of Chinese immigrants. He worked at a catering company where he was the supervisor. He approached some of his co-workers with an offer to make some quick cash and an all-expenses trip to Bali. Three of his co-workers accepted the offer. They were Renee Lawrence, Matthew Norman and Martin Stevens. So in addition to these four workmates from Sydney, there were also two Queensland teenagers, Michael Dugage and Scott Rush. They too had been offered an all-expenses-paid holiday to Bali, with spending money included. The man who invited them along was co-offender Tan Duk Than Wen, and they had met while out um, one night, I believe, at a karaoke bar around Brisbane. Now, if that offer sounds a bit suspicious to you, you wouldn't be the only one to think so. Police would be contacted by co-workers who had rejected this offer. The two final members were Si Yi Chen and Myron Sukumaran. Sukumaran was born in England to Sri Lankan parents and the family immigrated to Australia when he was four. He and Chan had actually gone to high school together, but they were years apart, so they didn't become friends until 2002 when they met at a party. So most of the group members spent majority of the time they were in Bali in their hotel rooms. 
Chan had separated the New South Wales and Queensland couriers. They didn't meet until their arrests. So Chan and Sukumaran were carrying out a dual operation. Indonesian police had started surveillance early on after receiving a letter from the Australian Federal Police, who from now on I will be calling the AFP. The letter had been written on the 8th of April and sent to the following authorities. Sorry, sorry, sent to the following Indonesian authorities. The Chief of Police, the Intelligence Director, the Narcotics Director, the Director of Criminal Investigation and Interpol Jakarta. So they had set up a makeshift headquarters in a hotel room opposite Yi Chen and Matthew Norman. It was later explained how police conducted surveillance very closely, focusing on Andrew Chan, who they believed to be the singular leader of the group. In fact, Sukumaran had not been on the list of eight suspects that were in the tip-off from the Australian police, and it was thought that Sukumaran was Chan's bodyguard. Local authorities sort of called him the enforcer. Whenever they left the hotel, two officers would tail them on motorbikes. But confusingly, these surveillance operatives did not capture the collection of the heroin. Indonesian authorities say that they had the group under 24-hour surveillance, but they did not know who sold the group the drugs. Just quickly, it did come to light, though, that Chan had collected the heroin from 22-year-old Thai woman who had flown into Bali from Thailand with the heroin. Meanwhile in Australia, Scott Rush's father was growing concerned about what his son might be up to. Scott had told um, them that he was on a trip to Cairns, but the family had messages left on their answering machine from Flight Centre. He rung a friend who was a barrister and his friend recommended that Mr Rush contact the AFP. Mr Rush had wanted them to maybe give Scott a bit of a scare and to discourage him from going ahead with the crime. The police didn't do this though. Interrupting the sting would damage their chances of exposing those higher up in the syndicate and that was their priority. A few media reports made out as though it was Mr Rush who had alerted the police, um, you know, in the first place. But this is false. The group were already under surveillance by then. On April 17th, of 2005, the New South Wales pair Renee Lawrence and Martin Stevens took a taxi to Nagura Ray Airport, as did Queenslanders Scott Rush and Michael Chugage. All four were arrested while in the boarding lounge. Moments later, the heroin was discovered strapped to their legs and torso. The search was filmed and broadcasted. They had signs draped around their neck labelled Tsangka, the Indonesian word for suspect. 
Andrew Chan at this point was sitting alone, reading and waiting to board his flight to Sydney. He was not carrying any heroin on himself or in his luggage. As instructed by the AFP, the remainder were taken down immediately following the airport bust. They were in a hotel room where scales, packaging items and 350 grams of heroin was found. They were allegedly preparing for a second shipment. One of these men was Sukumaran. It was his 24th birthday and he would go on to spend the next 10 on death row. When they were separated, so they were separated, detained and questioned at police headquarters in Denpasar, where some of the offenders were meeting for the first time. Indonesian law allows for questioning to take up to 70 days before prosecutors take over the case. Each of the seven couriers, so I'll deal with I'll, a couple of those, um, I'll refer to them as the seven, and they're the ones, of course, who do not include the co-ringleaders. So they didn't give much away to authorities initially, but they eventually buckled with Renee Lawrence being the first to crack. Under the advice of her lawyer, she began to cooperate with the Indonesian authorities and this was rewarded in a reduced sentence. She also made a statement um, explaining that she had participated in an earlier operation with Chan where they successfully transported heroin to Australia. State, statements made by the co-offenders um, confirmed their belief that Chan and now Sukumaran were the leaders, but these two refused to cooperate with local police. So Chan denied knowing any of the other eight involved and he didn't, you know, he didn't have any involvement with any sort of drugs. So the interrogations of both ringleaders were painstaking, slow and exhausting. So to give you a picture of how Chan at least responded to these local investigators, um, in an interview um, that I just saw on YouTube the other day, but um, it, was, it was from like a breakfast show. Uh, so Chan was interviewed at uh, Karabakan prison and this is how he explains when he got arrested. He said to the officers, I haven't done anything. I've got a plane to catch. And if you've got nothing on me, like, I'm out of here. So they didn't seem very shell-shocked by the experience. But the, the seven um, mules, as they've been called, um, they certainly were mentally deteriorating from this, um, their arrest. So each of the seven recruited mules were sentenced to either life in prison or the death penalty. And I know it sounds a bit frivolous of me to say it that way, but the sentences did wax and wane between the appeals process for each of them. However, at the end of all of those, they were given life in prison. However, Renee Lawrence was released in 2018 after serving 13 years. Tan Duk Than Wen died of kidney cancer in 2018 in a Jakarta hospital and the other five are all still serving life sentences in Indonesia. 
Right, I'll be back to cover the events from the trial to the execution of both Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran. Right, so now I'll cover the trial and sentencing of Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran. So as I mentioned earlier, neither of these men cooperated with the authorities after their arrest and it was a similar story for their trial. News Corp journalist Cindy Wagner, who specialised in covering events from Indonesia, so she was the Indonesian correspondent and they, that started um, with uh, the Bali bombings in 2002. So she has been covering events um, that occurred in Indonesia for quite some time. She was there for the trials and she had met both Chan and Sukumaran early on and stayed with them through to the end. So she wrote a book detailing just what she saw firsthand at their trials. She wrote of how both of them were surly and insolent during the trials and treated the judge as though he was stupid. This behaviour was disastrous, quote, in a legal system that places a great deal of emphasis on cooperation, on courtesy, and politeness in court and on admissions of guilt and expressions of remorse. Wachner wrote that Sukumaran responded to questions with I don't know so many times that it became ridiculous. One judge asked him have you ever had the disease amnesia to which he replied what was the definition of amnesia and then added that he can't remember when he had it. Judges became incensed. Chan also replied in a similar uh, fashion to questions during his separate trial. At one point, a judge told the interpreter to tell Chan, Indonesian judges are not stupid people. So, like not ingratiating themselves would be putting it lightly. During closing submissions, the prosecution told the judge, sentence them both to death and Chan smirked. The translator asked him if he knew what the words hukuman mati meant. Chan replied, yeah, death penalty, no problem. They were convicted and sentenced to death. So reporter and author Cindy Wachner admits that she didn't initially take to the pair, but saw them both turn their lives around entirely. So they went from cocky young criminals to deeply like spiritual men who helped other inmates work toward a brighter future. Her book, is called The Pastor and the Painter, the title highlighting that Chan and Sukumaran were not defined by these crimes and they were put to death as um, not to drug traffickers but Andrew Chan had become a Christian 
pastor, as well as the minister to fellow inmates. And Myron Sukumaran had become an accomplished artist while behind bars. They were reformed men by all accounts, including the governor of Karabakan prison, who testified in court that they should not be put to death. They were such positive influences on other inmates. So news coverage here in Australia explained how they were leading initiatives to try and rehabilitate and empower inmates. They had established art classes, English language classes, computer workshops, boxing classes and Bible study. And Chan led the English language church service. The reporter mentioned that very few inmates chose to attend these, which was pretty cute. 50 out of 1,200, um, the reporter said, but Chan and Sukumaran kept at it though. When discussing these initiatives, Sukumaran said, it makes you feel productive as though you haven't wasted your life so badly. Many requests for judicial reviews were lodged in the years they spent in prison, as well as appeals for clemency or a presidential pardon. These were denied consistently. So the presidential pardon and was denied consistently by former Indonesian President Bambang Yugiono, but um, they were also rejected by the current president, Joko Widodo. So things between Australia and Indonesia became fairly tense starting in the February of 2015 when um, the Indonesian government announced the imminent execution of Chan and Sukumaran. So they had this last-ditch um, legal move to attempt to have a judicial review of the entire case, which was refused. The Australian Foreign Affairs Minister pleaded in federal parliament for Indonesia to spare their lives and the Australian Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, appealed directly to President Widodo to show mercy. Abbott reminded Indonesia of the humanitarian relief we gave after the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004, including a billion dollars worth of assistance. So all of this didn't go over too well. A spokesperson for Indonesia's foreign ministry replied that no one responds well to threats and that threats are not part of diplomatic language. And President Widodo added, the first thing I need to say firmly is that there shouldn't be any intervention towards the death penalty because it is our sovereign right to exercise our law. In March of 2015, Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran were transferred from Karabakan Prison to Nusikambang. Oh, I, I really practiced this one too. Nusikambangang, which is, I should have called it Death Island like other people do. Um, it is the location where executions take place. Following their transfer, there was still an incredible amount of activity by their lawyers in appealing the refusal of clemency, as well as further bids by Australian politicians to stop the executions. So President Widodo ruled out any potential prisoner swap 
and news leaked that Australia had offered to cover the costs of the men's entire life prison term if they were spared execution. Australians threatened to uh, boycott travelling to Bali and again President Widodo criticised the efforts of Australian politicians to intervene. In April of 2015, Chan and Sukumaran were given 72 hours notice of execution. I'd like to take a minute to explain the ritualistic steps involved in Indonesia's execution by firing squad. These are according to the law and explained by an Indonesian news media site. I put the link in the show notes. So the convict is woken in the middle of the night. I've, when I read that, I thought, what sort of chilled out convict would actually be asleep any point in that sort of the night leading up to an execution? But um, by, by all accounts, Chan and Sukumaran were at peace. So yeah, maybe I um, don't have the faintest idea of what goes through their minds. I'll start again. I've lost the um, the atmosphere. So the convict is woken in the middle of the night and taken out to an area of jungle. Then they are given clothing that is simple, clean and white. They may be accompanied by a priest or spiritual advisor. The firing squad is already on site an hour prior with 12 long barreled guns positioned within five to 10 meters of the prisoner. Following a final examination of the weapons, the acting commander then orders the shooters to fill the rifles with ammunition. Only three guns out of the 12 will have live ammunition. The others will have blanks. Each rifle is loaded it says with one bullet each, but I'm fairly sure that is um, for a single execution. Whereas Indonesian execution by firing squad is much more often a, um, carried out on groups of prisoners. The, uh, the convict is tired and given a maximum of three minutes to calm down. When they're ready, they may choose or refuse to have a black cloth covering their eyes. Each convict has a mark drawn on their clothing indicating the location of their heart and the firing squad takes its shooting position and waits for the acting commander to brandish a sword. This indicates that they're to unlock their weapons. Then when the acting commander drops the sword they are to begin firing simultaneously. A doctor checks each convict as to whether there are any signs of life. If there is, the convict will be shot in the temple. Two days before his execution, Andrew Chan married Febiati Herawilla and that was one of his final wishes. Febiati Febianti was or is a um, Javanese princess as well as a pastor. She had met Chan while she was preaching at Karabakan prison. Um, and in 
Sukumaran's last days, he painted some touching artworks, one of which was signed by each of the convicts executed that day, night. The last pair, like the pair's last meal, were buckets of KFC. And on April 29th of 2015, Chan and Sukumaran and six other convicts were taken out to a jungle clearing at 12.25am. There was one Brazilian, four Nigerians and one Indonesian. They were all sentenced to death for drug trafficking. They all declined the use of a blindfold. They were tied to crosses which were positioned four metres apart. Chan and Sukumaran's crosses were beside each other. The eight men were singing Amazing Grace as the firing squad were preparing. Andrew Chan called out, Sing up! We can do better than that! And the men kept singing until the shots rang out. Blanks used in the execution, so out of the 12 shooters, there are 3 out of 12 who have live ammunition, 9 out of 12 who have blanks. These, the use of blanks is it to rid shooters of guilt. They won't ever know for sure if they'd been the ones to kill and um, the likelihood is against it too. I um I I wasn't sure like how this works for group executions, you know, if the ammunition is mixed, then the odds worsen pretty quickly that eventually one of these bullets will be live ammunition. But um I think that I settled on a um a belief or sort of presumption that each shooter must be given they're, you know, this is your set of bullets, you know, and all of them would be blanks or all of them would be live. Hope that makes sense. Um, and um, having the acting commander use a sword. So that sounded, when I read it the first time, so ceremonial to me. But um. The reasoning behind it is so the prisoners don't hear these instructions. That still leaves a little bit of curiosity on my behalf because I'm, I'm not sure if not hearing the instructions is meant to um, make the process easier or more agonising for them. Um, one last thing about execution by firing squad, if you don't mind. So at my local library, um, you can buy dated editions of different magazines and journals for 20, 20 cents. I blitz it fairly often. And um, I was reading an article from one of them the other day um, out of Popular Science. And the article is called Death Row at Death's Door. It's about how some states in the US that use the lethal injection as a method of execution face a real problem of running out of the drugs used in the lethal cocktail. 
So several companies believe that having their drugs used in executions harms their reputation and that their drugs are not intended for that use. Some have filed a suit to keep their drugs out of the execution chamber. The article explores other options. And like naturally, like early on, I began to consider myself what I thought would be the least inhumane method of execution that is also um, efficient and with a low margin of error. And I was thinking firing squad the entire time. And it was surprising that the, uh, the writer of the article suggested likewise at the end of it. The Hymn Amazing Grace was written in 1772 by Englishman John Newton. He had spent much of his life as a slave trader before becoming an Anglican priest. John Newton remarked that it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. The words of Amazing Grace are about redemption and I hope that you see that in some of the story today. When researching this article, article? I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there. When researching this episode, I, um, I listened to my favourite rendition of Amazing Grace a fair bit and I wanted to share it with you. I saw that um, most of my listeners are actually in the United States, so maybe you wouldn't have heard it. So please keep listening if you're a bit like me and a, um, a sucker for gospel songs. It is sung by the late Indigenous Australian musician Garamul and he sings in he sings the hymn in both English and his native Yalengu. Thanks again and goodbye for now. <laughs>